Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week, we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology, and we get into the Bible. And we discuss how to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today, we continue our conversation on our Advent series. In the second sermon, titled Advent for the Loveless, Pastor Stephen unpacks the biblical story of an unwanted dinner guest and how Jesus responded. We'll look at what it means to love Jesus recklessly and how to love others more, especially during Advent. All that and more is on the table today as we dive into Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 8. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Stephen, I know that National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation is one of your favorite Christmas movies, right? <laughs> it sure is. It sure is. I'm glad it, we've made it to the time of year where it's finally acceptable for me to watch it rather than just being the odd one out watching it in the middle of May. Like May or summer or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I don't know if this, tell me if I'm wrong about this, but for some reason, this story about Mary crashing this dinner reminded me of a cousin um, Eddie. Yeah. Who comes yeah. in, right? Because the guy's uncouth. He doesn't have any manners. He doesn't have any social graces. Um, set the scene here. Is, is this sort of what's happening with this woman busting into this party? <laughs> uh, that's a good way to put it. I haven't thought about it that way. Um, so yeah, what we know of the scene is is pretty general, to be honest. Um, Mark, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all uh, record this story. They uh, set it in different places based on the goal of their gospel account, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we know that this is taking place at the house of Simon the leper, Simon who uh, was also a Pharisee. Um, Luke tells us that he was a Pharisee. Um, it, it's possible that a, a Pharisee was hosting the dinner at Simon's house, but highly unlikely that a Pharisee would openly collaborate with a leper. Um, so this is just a a, a, a gathering of friends, um, you know, and that that know each other. This is a this isn't um, a, a teaching opportunity for Jesus. This isn't um, like other scenes we have where Jesus has performed a miracle or is healing people, and folks are just crowding in. Hmm. Um, it, it it it's it's friends. It's a friend circle, a, a extended family, like a friends giving. We might say that's what's going on here. John tells us that Lazarus was there. Um, Martha, Lazarus's sister, uh, served the food. Um, At at the very least, additionally, the disciples are there, um, and they're all reclining around table, right? So they're not sitting in chairs, they're sitting on the floor, their feet are off to the side or behind them in some way, and they're eating food. Um, Mm -hmm. Mark doesn't exactly limit the attendees to just the disciples, but it's it's highly unlikely that anybody outside of Jesus's close friend circle was there, simply because it is coming time uh, for the Passover feast, uh, but also the time for his uh, arrest and his um, crucifixion. And so he's not uh, out doing uh, public teachings or healings anymore. He is really focusing on um, his closest friends. And then Mary comes in. Mary is Lazarus and Martha's uh, other sister, mm-hmm. and she breaks this alabaster flask open, pours it over Jesus. According to Luke, she wipes Jesus's feet with her hair while she's crying. 
Um, and it is kind of a, a, a kooky scene for sure. Um, you know, there there was ceremonial f- washings that went on, and I'm sure they had already done that now that they are at the table rather than preparing for the table kind of thing. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, yeah, there's a sense in which this is uh, akin to her standing up and saying the Pledge of Allegiance instead of uh, <laughs> saying grace for the meal. No, so was there like a social class issue or, or not? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, uh, if you're looking from the outside, if this is a normal dinner party, there's no reason that Mary should be there. Mm-hmm. Um, Luke especially highlights Mary's, um, let's say, history, right? So mm-hmm. Luke uh, chapter 7, 39 records this, that when when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw that Mary had come in and broken the flask and that kind of stuff, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is mm. touching him, for she is a sinner. So there, there definitely is this um, disconnect between what uh, is happening at the table, happening there that evening, and what she's doing. Um, at the very least, like her presumed history would not have allowed her at the dinner, right? We're assuming that she has probably an, an a rather, uh, you know, bad reputation mm-hmm. um a checkered past. whether she's yeah whether she's a prostitute or not is up uh, for debate um for sure but it, the fact that Luke records it this way that that the Pharisee that invited him right Simon um is concerned because of her sinfulness mm-hmm. um tells us that this is probably not a normal occurrence however uh, if this is just Jesus's friend group, if this is Mary, Martha, Lazarus, the disciples at Simon's house, and nobody else really, this is a, like a family meal, a friend's giving, mm-hmm. um, then the dis- like this is the the family of God put on display, right? This is God's economy at the table, um, and in God's economy, in Jesus's circle, she was not only invited but a valued member, um, both who she was as a person, um, to just be there, to be a part of the group, but also based on what she does once she is there, right? So there's a sense, mm-hmm. like, the social structure says, no, this shouldn't happen. The religious structure says, this isn't okay. She is not worthy to be there. But in in the new order that Jesus brings into his creation, she's there, and she should be there, and she's welcomed, uh, not just like sit in the corner and be quiet, you should be thankful that you're even at dinner, but come and and worship how you are feeling led to worship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe she was supposed to be there, it was a, for a Friendsgiving kind of a, of a thing, but she did violate some social norms, didn't she? What did she do? Sure, yeah, so I mean... There's a lot that she does that's totally not okay. Um, first of all, she, as a sinner, as someone who was, um, you know, not necessarily of the best reputation, um, being that close to a rabbi w- was not okay. Being that close to someone who was proclaiming himself to be God was definitely not acceptable. Also, a, a, a woman who most likely was not married, touching um, a, a man, uh, not socially, religiously acceptable, um, interrupting the meal and and really anointing Jesus. Right, this is this is an act of um, royal 
uh, classification that she's doing. So uh, by pouring oil on Jesus's head, there's a there's a connotation within Israel of uh, anointing that would happen with a king, right? And and very few cultures back then did this, Israel being one of them. And so she's interrupting the flow of the meal by doing what she wants to do. She's speaking out of turn. She she's she is breaking so many social rules. There's probably tons more. People are going to listen to this and be like, "He only said four, but there's a <laughs> lot." Um yeah. But what's really interesting is that's not what sets people off, right? That's not why people get frustrated. Um, it's the fact that she didn't sell the jar and give the proceeds to the poor, right? And, and so if we take a step back um, and say that uh, this is his friend group, this is Jesus' closest associates, um, not out, no outside Pharisees or scribes, Jesus is not trying to make a point uh, or teach something, um, most of the people there would know, like, the social rules, uh, they're not as important to Jesus, uh, particularly not more important than worshiping God. Um, so th- those kind of social rules that she broke, the religious norms that she's kind of transgressing, the people there probably aren't going to be as uh, appalled by those actions, mm-hmm. but still there was a religious legalism uh, held deep in their hearts, which said there's a right way to worship God, and you're not doing it. There is an order that should be followed, and you are just out here willy-nilly doing whatever you think is right, breaking jars of perfume and dumping them on people's head in the middle of meals, um, right? So I, I think that's what's really powerful about this passage, is that even the people who cl- were closest with Jesus and understood that he was taking um, cultural norms, societal norms, religious norms, and turning them on their head back to the way they should be, they were still surprised and appalled at her behavior. And Jesus leans into it, right? I mean, uh, Mary breaks the the alabaster jar, the oil goes over him, and and then Jesus kind of commits his own party foul. He he predicts his own death. Right, and, yeah, uh, right. again. Yeah. And so then, so, so it seems like most people stayed, but Judas got up and left. And I was wondering... Was Judas more upset about the oil being wasted or Jesus predicting his death? Yeah. Well, uh, to be honest, we don't we, we don't know if Judas yeah. was really upset about this oil, right? Like right. maybe he re- he really loved pure nard, um, <laughs> or uh, but, it was being wasted and not being sold for the poor. Sure. Uh, there's yeah. a there's a part which might make sense in the whole history of you know Jesus or Judas earning some money and then not giving it the way he should, you know that. That might have been what really set him off, but we mm-hmm. what we know is that throughout the gospel record, the disciples, all of them, are confounded whenever Jesus predicts his own death. Like, throughout mm-hmm. the gospel accounts, whenever he says something about it, they're all like, oh yeah, sure, 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 whatever you, you say. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they can't reconcile those uh, pro, you know, prophecies of him dying that he makes of, of himself with what they've expected of the Messiah, right? The the power, the the kingdom, everything that they've expected from God's chosen servant doesn't leave room for someone to suffer, for someone to die. If Jesus died, they assumed that was it, right? The the idea of God coming uh, to save his people, that was over, and everything would be ruined, right? That's, that's really the reason that Peter, uh, after he abandons Jesus, goes back to fishing, right? He thinks hmm. it's done. Yeah. He thinks it's over. There was nothing left that could happen to change his sin, his abandonment. 
right? The the process was over as far as they they concerned they were concerned, and so that makes sense uh, to me to make the educated guess um, that I think many scholars uh, have taken that Judas was really um, enamored with Jesus's initial. Uh, talk of salvation, of restoring uh, the 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 people of God, God's family, and once Jesus began to unpack what that looked like, as he began to talk about him being suffer suffering and, and dying, Judas was so uh, married to the order of um you know, a, a king coming to power, being installed on the throne, casting out the enemies, casting off Rome, gathering all of God's people who had been dispersed throughout the, the ancient Near East, um, that he couldn't reconcile what Jesus was saying with what he was expecting. And so there there had mm. to be something in his head that said, either this is completely opposite of what I've been expecting, or I, I read this in one of the commentaries I looked into, and I think it's pretty helpful, actually, to think about it this way. Perhaps Judas thought that he could set the whole inauguration coming to power um, off by having Jesus arrested, right? Like, Jesus has Mm. had kind of this peaceful momentum for some time. If something, you know, some ignition happened in Jesus's ministry, perhaps then he would come to the throne, he would take up his authority, he would take up the power that he deserved. Um, that was, uh, to me, that was like, hey, maybe let's give Judas a little bit more uh, the benefit of the doubt. But but whatever was going on in Jesus's mind, and or excuse me, in Judas's mind and in Judas's heart, he couldn't jive with Jesus saying, as God's son and his servant whom he sent to to save his people, I'm going to die. That was not okay with Judas. Hmm. So let's go back to, to Mary for a second. Um Jesus saw Mary's actions as beautiful. Others saw them as inappropriate or wasteful. What I was wondering is that, are there other things that we find inappropriate or wasteful that Jesus finds beautiful? Sure, yeah. Um, And you know, that's a really, it's a hard question to just give examples for. I I think Mm -hmm. two things that I think that come to mind. One that I I know that people out there, like hopefully people who are listening are going to go, well, maybe. Um, I, I think that there's a sense in which we, um, like living humbly in whatever realm we're called to live, I think for us uh, tends to be thought of as wasteful or you know, like, hey, we're we're living in Silicon Valley. People are driving great cars. They everybody's got a Tesla. Everybody's got an Apple Watch. You know, most people don't own their homes, but people are at least paying you know X number of dollars in rent. Mm-hmm. And then once you make more money, you move a little further out. You get a bigger house. It's just kind of what you do. And there's this flow, this rhythm of life that happens as you become more successful, more established, and to choose to do something different right? Like to live in an apartment or a, a townhouse instead, it might, it might be easy for us to look at and say, well, like, this is your one opportunity to have a house, and so your kids have their own bedrooms, or you get to do X, Y, and Z, or whatever. Like, I, I think there's a sense in which we are, are quick to look down upon folks who aren't taking uh, full advantage of the, you know, the, the, 
the corporate ladder that they might be mm-hmm. climbing or even just the area, whatever that might be. But something that like I was really struck with in thinking about this is um, how quickly I am able to cast judgment upon other um, pastors, particularly pastors who don't necessarily um, fit kind of the the mold that I'm trying to build for myself, like what I'm trying to do or be or, or, or you know, how I behave as a pastor. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about guys who are preaching, you know, online all the time, like not just during COVID, but like their online presence is huge and their hair is, you know, done up <laughs> and they're wearing lots of nice clothes and they're right. working out seven days a week to get jacked. And they are yeah. just kind of laying into these uh, gospel refrains that aren't necessarily theologically like heavy, they're not like breaking texts down, whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I look at that and I'm like, well, that's that's kind of wasteful. You have all these people listening to you and you're choosing to talk about that or you're choosing to behave like that. You're choosing to live this way. Um, but like I, as I was writing the sermon and thinking about this, like the reality is that those pastors in particular are speaking to an audience uh, about Jesus's death and resurrection that I probably will never have an opportunity to speak to just mm. by sheer difference of lifestyle. Right. Um, and, and so for me to, to cast judgment on them for their lifestyle or to look down on them or to say what a wasted opportunity um, is, is imposing my own order, my own systems and structures upon someone else's act of worship or act of devotion or whatever. And it's it's not necessarily fair. And so I was kind of struck by that thinking like, yeah, there's there's a lot actually that we might look at and say, this is inappropriate, this is wasteful. But when in reality, they're doing what they feel called to do, hopefully as an act of worship. Um, but as Paul says, right, like even, even if these people are proclaiming Christ or worshiping or doing whatever in order to, you know, to benefit themselves or to hurt other people, to show, you know, stick it to some another pastor, like, at the very least, Christ is being proclaimed. So, mm-hmm. that yeah, I think that's a... There's lots of ways that we judge other people's actions uh, as inappropriate or wasteful, um, mm-hmm. and I highly suspect that Jesus finds beauty in lots of it. Mm. So, uh, do you think that Social conventions and propriety can keep us from loving Jesus fully? Absolutely. Yeah. And this is, I think, stronger um, in affecting our worship and our behavior and uh, the way that we approach Jesus than we know, Um, Hmm. particularly because um, the way others see us and expect us to live uh, plays powerfully in decisions that we make, particularly... Um, like instantaneous decisions. Um, I'm thinking about like growing up in and going to you know high school church camp and just like really feeling uh, emotionally connected to God through a song, but not wanting to raise your hands because other people are going to mm. see you raise your hands and think like, oh, you shouldn't do that. Or the opposite, right? You maybe you grew up in in the church or not in the church, and you assume that worshiping God means you should have your eyes closed, your hands raised, you should be dancing, right? Like, if you're not doing those things, then you're not actually worshiping. And so there, we we fall into the idea that what's, what's most visible is most authentic. And so if people see hmm. 
our behavior, you know, in a certain way, they're going to assume, hey, this person is worshiping, or this person is not worshiping, or true worship looks like this, or or, or not like this, and you know, like I, I think we see instances in Scripture where this plays out. In particular, I'm thinking of David dancing before the Lord. Oh yeah, and his wife you know, didn't like that. Right, his wife was like, "Hey, you probably shouldn't <laughs> be doing this." It's like, chill out, David. Yeah, um, and and that happens, I think, inside of us so frequently that it change it does shape it changes the way that we engage and, and in some cases in particular like it prevents us from from really expressing or really walking into what the spirit is doing in our hearts because we're we're preventing ourselves from really uh keeping in touch with our emotional connection um because we're afraid of what people are going to think of us and, and yet order in of itself is not a bad thing, right? I mean, you're not saying that that disorder or chaos, like the kind that Mary sort of injected into that situation, uh, is always a good thing. Right, absolutely, right? That order, desiring order isn't bad. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, order itself is part of the image of God that is built into each uh, human being, right? Think about it. In Genesis 1, when we see the creative process beginning, God uh, forms the heavens and the earth, and the the Hebrew tells us that the earth was tohu and bohu, right? These two words that <laughs> mean, that we've translated to mean formless and void, but like the range of what those words means is is vast because it was just chaotic. It was messy. There was nothing there that would sustain life. It was completely wild um, in the sense of being out of order, out of structure. And what does God do? Um, he forms things that then can sustain life. He brings order out of this chaos. He builds in processes and mathematics and time and physics and all the systems that create and keep life going. God brought that out of something that was, first of all, nothing, and then it was chaotic. So desiring order in our lives is good because it mirrors the creative activity uh, of God. But the problem lies when we think that it is the order itself that we need in order to be okay. Hmm. Um, When we uh, take order, structure, uh, systems, whatever that might be, and we elevate those to an ultimate level, right, which often leads us to um, look down quickly on things that are outside of our our order, our expectations, right? Like, it's it's not that we're sitting here going, okay, you know, the way that life is perfectly formed, it will make me happy, so I need to go and do that. That's not—it's very rarely conscious like that. It's far more subconscious, and we see it come out most often when people disrupt the order that we want out of life. So when you see a parent in a grocery store and their kid's throwing a temper tantrum, right, that parent hasn't consciously sat down and thought, if I can get in, get my groceries, and get out without little Timmy losing it— then mm-hmm. everything's going to be okay. They just have had the order of their life disrupted, and so now they're experiencing this chaos that they didn't want. And, and that's what happens for most of us, is that we subconsciously worship order. We subconsciously worship the systems that keep our life going, and 
our our worship of it, our idolatry of those things only comes out when things are upsetting that order. And that's what COVID is doing right now, right? Like mm. our the order of our lives is being uh, ruffled. Our, we're having the things uh, that we liked um, messed up. The, they're being put out of place on purpose. Um, and, and so we are, our idolatry is being exposed. And so that is causing real problems for us, particularly when it comes to the way that we engage with other people, whether we choose to love them or lash out at them because they're the ones uh, disrupting the order of our lives. And when Mary did this, she came into the room, she rejected order, she, she said no to social convention, uh, and yet Jesus said that she loved him in a way that was reckless and profound. So what might it look for us to love Jesus the way that Mary did? Yeah, um, an incredibly personal question for sure. Um, just knowing um, what you've been given, what experiences, wisdom, um, what capacity you have, um, and engaging with those in an honest way uh, looks different for everybody. And that kind of um, recklessness, uh, you know, I don't even know if that's a, the great, the best term for it, but just a, no. a, an honesty, right? Like mm-hmm. a, a vulnerable honesty. Um, and I, I think a, a great example of this, you know, it happened last year between the two of us. We were planning to go on this mission trip to go mm-hmm. to Africa. Um, and there, this is something that I've done for years. I've been connected with this church in a slum in Nairobi, Kenya for, uh, gosh, 15 years now, and been almost 10 times, nine times, I think I've been. Uh, these are very close friends of mine, and I was trying to get a, a group of us to go. And one of the things that you and several other folks brought up was safety, right? Like, how mm. safe is it for us to travel there? What does it look like for us to be in the midst of a country that we don't know well, with people we don't know at all, and knowing that, you know, the world, the global climate isn't necessarily uh, always safe. And and one of the things that we talked about on the front end was, like, there's always risk. There's always um, an option where things don't go the way we expect them to, and you could get hurt, and there's always a possibility of losing your life and that kind of stuff. But God guarantees that this life isn't all there is. And so there's a sense in which we have to have an eternal mindset, right? And so some people might look at that and say, oh, it's really risky, or it's really like, it's, it's bold love for you to go share the gospel and love on, you know, kids who are, have been orphaned because of HIV AIDS that live in the slum, to go and help them build a, a shelter for uh, adults who don't have education, and so they, they can't get jobs and they don't have any place to live. Like, that could be risky on the surface. Um, that could be, you know, a, a vulnerable, authentic act of, of love for Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then what happened is slowly folks on the were interested in going, had conflicts come up or they didn't want to go, and it was just down to you and I, right, Matt? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. you were you were having conversations with your wife and she was starting to be concerned about this. You were dead set on going. She was yes. really concerned. And what what came out was, uh, you know, if you really look at what Jesus calls you to do, sacrificing yourself for others is key. 
does it make sense for you to think that sacrificing yourself for people in Africa is is more valuable or more important than sacrificing your desire to go to Africa mm. for your wife? And so what ended up happening was you and I both ended up saying, loving our spouses and and hearing their concern and choosing to sacrifice our desire to go for an opportunity to love them and meet them, like, for me, that was really hard. And it's still really hard. Like, I'm still kind of working through, this was a a, a better choice. This was a more loving choice for me, uh, both loving of my spouse, but also loving uh, loving Jesus, right? Honoring this uh, call that he's put in our lives to be sacrificial for our wives. Um, that is costly, but it's mm-hmm. what he's given us. It, it uses the the wisdom and the experience that he's given us, and it uses uh, the truth that he has put in us to to choose to worship him in a way that that is costly, right? It, it upset mm-hmm. the order. I wanted our order to look like the end of 2019, we yes. went to Africa. Yeah, and me too. It would have kept 2020 a little bit better for me, to be honest. But <laughs> yeah. the true act of worship was saying... My desires and my wants are not as valuable as my wife's because I know that God has 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 given me everything that I absolutely need and want and could ever have. And so I can give that away. And I can hmm. give that to her. and so I like to me, those are two two opportunities to say that's a risky type of love. Going overseas, putting yourself potentially at risk, but also giving up the thing that you're desiring and and know would be good and beneficial in order to love someone and sacrifice for someone um, and rather than just get what you want. Those are two things that I think are completely different, but are in, in the same way upsetting the order uh, and, and being uh, authentic like Mary worshiping Jesus here. So I feel like I just had a personal pastoral counseling session. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll schedule another one for later. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Well, you actually kind of answered the next question, but maybe we can unpack it a bit more. What does this passage say about loving others? Yeah, and, and this was kind of the point that I pulled out for the sermon, uh, which was um, I, Jesus doesn't explicitly talk about loving others uh, when he talks to those looking down at, on Mary's actions, uh, but what he says is uh, very fundamental to how we should approach other people. And and the first is never assuming that you understand everything they're going through. Um, and, and particularly now in the midst of uh, shelter in place and COVID, and we've had these wildfires and the election and all the, the racial uh, violence and, and all of the protests that have happened because of that, like everybody is in a completely different and unique spot. Um, just like Mary was, right? Mary's walking into this dinner in a completely different point in her life than any other person in that room, even her own sister, right? Like, we know that there's a big difference between them personality-wise. Um, and what Jesus says is, um, she did what she could. She has a, a particular um, ex- like life story. Her experiences are unique. Her wisdom is unique. Her, like, in that moment, connection to Jesus is unique. So don't go and try and judge her, right? Don't don't do don't start there, um, and and like to me that is the the first problem that we come to all of us when we interact with other people is we assume we understand, 
We assume mm. we know. We assume like, hey, this person kind of has the same lifestyle as me. Like, they live on my street. They have a similar house to me. Like, I know that they work at a different company than I do, but it's a pretty much the same size company. They're probably making the same amount of money as me. They have, uh, they've been married. They're they're married. They have two kids. I'm married. I have two kids. Like, they were the same, mm. and that's just not true. Um, and loving people looks like not assuming. Uh, but being curious, right? I had a pastor friend when I was in seminary say that grace is curious, um, which means that grace can't assume, right? If you want to be gracious and loving mm. like Jesus was, you can't assume you understand. And, and I think that's a really good first step when it comes to loving others. And I, I think the other thing we see out of Jesus is that um, uh, an individual's connection to Jesus is it, it's, it's going to be different. And so loving others looks not like making people conform so much as it does um, being curious about their personal relationship and personal connection with Jesus. Mm -hmm. So does loving others prevent us from challenging people whose words or actions are harming others? And if not, how do we lovingly do this? Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Um, and I think one of the things that's important for us to to do um, and to see here in this passage is to is to check context, right? Who is in this room? Who is Jesus speaking to in particular? And, and what does that say to us about our audience um, and uh, the the reach of the a person that we're you know seeing their behavior, seeing their words, and knowing this is a problem. Uh, this is not truthful, and and I, I think one of the you know passages we could turn to would be Galatians two, where Paul opposes uh, Peter um, as he says to his face, um, and we just went over Galatians, so we've talked about this you know recently, um, but the reality is that Peter had an, a level of influence um, over the the church and and many churches in particular, but the church global because of his status. And so Paul sees his behavior in the context of this crisis where certain Christians were saying, if you want to be part of God's family, you got to believe in Jesus, and you also have to submit yourselves to the Jewish laws. And Paul sees this fault uh, beginning to appear in Peter's life as well. And whether he had time to sit and think about it, or this was the reason he made the decision or not, Paul opposes him and says, this is not okay. You cannot do this. You cannot shrink back from welcoming Gentiles who are totally different from us, who don't mm-hmm. follow the same uh, you know, ceremonial laws that we do. You can't stop welcoming them as brothers in Christ because they believe in the death and resurrection just as we do. And to me, that has less to do with always confronting uh, falsehoods and always uh, you know, speaking out against heresy than it does recognizing those who are going to listen to your voice. And I think that's really key for us today because we all have this little social media machine in front of us, whether it's our phone or it's our computer, and there's just this idea that people want to hear what you have to say. Um, And it gives Hmm. us the capacity to attack other people um, who maybe are saying things that are wrong, doing things that are wrong. It gives us the capacity to speak out against it, 
Um, and it allows us to engage with other people's lives who we know nothing about. So I think a first first level of challenging those whose words or actions are harming others, the first thing that that needs to come into play is immediacy. How 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 close are is this happening to you? Mm-hmm. Um, and in in my opinion, you know what I, I think we see uh, happening today is that everybody wants to comment about what's happening nationally or even you know, statewide or even on the city level. And that's fine. But I don't think that my voice is going to do a whole lot of good in in saying what I what I think is wrong. I think my voice in those matters does good when I talk to my spheres of influence about it. You know, people at mm-hmm. the church that want to talk about it, I know that they are interested in what I have to say. Maybe they disagree with me. Maybe they don't like what I have to say. That's fine. People that are at the CrossFit gym where I work out, they, they, they'll listen to me. Whether they agree with me or not, that's fine. I, I think about these, you know, spheres of immediacy, and, and I think that that's got to be a huge factor in us calling out people who are doing things that are harming others, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, there's always this scenario where you're traveling, you're in some other city, and you see someone robbing, a, you know, a person on the street. You should stop that from happening if you can, mm-hmm. by calling 911, by intervening, whatever. Like, yes, do not let harm come to other people. Do not let people lie bold face to other people. I get it. I, I don't disagree with that. Uh, what it looks like to to speak into people's lives who we disagree with and we think their thought process, their logic, whatever it is, is harming them, uh, that's kind of the, the second part of your question, right? What does it look like mm-hmm. to do it lovingly? Yeah. Um, I, I think that there has to be um, enough relational capital built up for that person to be willing to listen. And what I, I think that that limits the number of people that you get to call out, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, but it doesn't stop you from praying, and it doesn't stop you from uh, proclaiming the truth yourself to those who are willing to listen. And, and that's kind of like the most random mixed answer I think I've ever given you. Um, but I think no, we live in, stuff a, in there. I, I think we live <laughs> in a world where like we feel charged to challenge every single wrong that we see. And the problem is we're, we're using our voice in a way that isn't going to actually positively change anyone, and we're missing out on opportunities, whether it's, you know, in people nearby or by not speaking it, right? Like, people see what you're ranting about and raving about, and they hear what you're talking about, and you are, might actually be losing your voice with the mm-hmm. people in your immediacy because you seem to care about things that are so far away. Yeah. No, totally. I, I think that that absolutely makes sense. Uh, so your title is Advent for the Loveless. Um, how can we make this Advent more loving? Yeah, that's, uh, um, man, of all the Advents, this, this year is hard. Um, mm-hmm. It seems like this year has just been such a, a beatdown of so many things that we've held dear that saying, hey, you got to work more uh, to make Advent a little more loving. Um, I, I think what we see in Scripture is that um, you, you should know how loved you are. That's a great place to start. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look at 
the reality that Jesus um, came, uh, was born as a little baby in a manger, um, and lived uh, his life and died and rose again, uh, because he wants to be with you forever. Like, he wants you. He wants Hmm. to be around you. Like, that's Man, that that sh- that's a strong message, um, and if we believe that more, um, I think that our tendency to uh, hold on to order, to value systems, to elevate and idolize structure uh, would would be diminished, so that people who upset that order um, they don't come across as enemies anymore. Um, they don't frustrate our days or our weeks. Um, as much as they are right now, uh, we can we can be concerned about them a little more, um, mm. and we can you know. There's a there's a famous saying, man. I, I wish I had pulled this quote up ahead of time so I knew who said it. I, you know, there hurt people hurt people, right? Whatever. Who oh said yeah, that. sure. Uh, I think, I think the that. opposite is true as well. Loved people love people, hmm. um, and so you. I think. You see many, many, you know, countless examples throughout Christianity and in in our own lives. The times when we feel most connected and loved and cared for are times that we feel most willing to love others and care for others. And in particular, we see more opportunities to love others because we're not so focused on our own needs and wants and desires. And so, uh, you know, for this Advent, I think the first part of that is really, really powerful because so Mm -hmm. many of us feel unloved. So many of us feel like the order is upset and people are out to get us. Um, and and being able to take a step back and say, no, the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords uh, has done so much for me because he loves me. Um, he's not getting anything else from me. In fact, loving me has cost him a lot, but he still died for me anyway. Um, man, if you could preach that gospel to yourself every day, Mm. Um, I firmly believe that it would change not only your heart and what you valued and what you held dear, but also your actions and the way that you care for and love other people. Amen. That's something that we should tell ourselves throughout the day, that that we are loved and that the King of the universe has come and rescued us. And this is such a positive uh, and valuable message for for Advent. Uh, Stephen, thanks so much for your time again today. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. And by the way, brother, we will get to Africa. One day. One day day. for sure. (laughs) The title of Stephen's sermon is Advent for the Loveless. It's the second sermon in our anti-COVID Advent series. You can find that sermon and all of our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. We'd love to have you join us this Sunday for in-person outdoor worship at 11 a.m. in the courtyard of Crossroads Bible Church in San Jose. That is if it's not raining, which I'm not sure when this will be aired, but it may be raining and that changes everything. Uh, We have new county guidelines that have reduced our capacity from 150 to 100 worshipers. So you have to sign up. So look for that email from one of our pastors. If you can't join us for in-person worship, we are live streaming our service on Facebook and YouTube, and you can always access the sermon afterwards as well. If you're new to Grace, we would encourage you to visit our website at gracesouthbay.com and click on the Connect button at the top. Fill out the Connect card, and one of our pastors will reach out to you. Despite the pandemic, we've got a lot of things going on in our church, and we'd love to get you involved. We know that these are really challenging times. 
Grace's pastors, elders, and leaders are on duty, so let us know how we can care for you. We'll be back next week with another episode of the GSB podcast, so stay tuned and stay healthy. We look forward to our next time together. Now, go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.